You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, try to figure out what it means, talk about it, and uh, record and all that. So, um, how you doing, Em? <laughs> <laughs> it's been chaotic. And I know it's always chaotic, but we added more chaos because we've been in the middle of a move. So i am kind of got my temporary setup here. Uh, all my wonderful yeah. uh, commentaries are coming in handy because I'm able to, like, use them to stack my laptop on so that it's the right height. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully we'll get you a little more permanent setup once you kind of get in and get settled. Well, that's going to involve some construction because I got to build my steady. And so hopefully at that point, then it'll be nice, nice smooth sailing and not this frantic rearranging of everything to, uh, to get everything in. Cause I kind of like, I know you can't see my video right now, but I've got like this crazy, backdrop where everything's just kind of gotten thrown out and just placed random places just to get it out of boxes so sure yeah so anyway there's there's always that phase of moving yeah well and you know and that's beautiful thing about our listeners they don't care (laughs) they they aren't going to be upset because i'm in the middle actually you know i have been really surprised at how many listeners i've heard from who are really excited that we finally get a house so that's really that's been nice because, you know, big things happen in your life and to have other people who are actually celebrating with you. And, you know, some of these people I really don't know that well, and they, they've been just really, really excited that we've, we've managed to do this. So. Right. Right. And well, I'm well, yeah, excited. I, I'm excited for you. Yeah. Like I still <laughs> haven't got a chance to go in and see it, but um, maybe, maybe, I don't know what's, I guess it's October. I guess we'll probably try to come up for Thanksgiving or something. Um, oh, that's scary. We'll have to like, you know, I actually have an oven big enough to cook a bird in. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> I haven't so, hosted a family holiday in forever. That's true. But yeah, it'll be, it'll be fine. I mean, our family is very informal. So you know how that goes. Yeah, they have to be because I mean, we wouldn't participate if they weren't. <laughs> right, right. Well, cool. Well, hey, uh, that well, I'm, I'm excited for you on that, but that's uh, not why most people tune in, uh, right? <laughs> so, I guess we should probably talk a little, little Bible. Um, refresh me where we left off last week. I, I've I've slept since then. Yeah, we're we're back in Second Samuel 17. We kind of wrapped up last week. We we looked at the themes that connected David and Absalom's story to Genesis six, to um, the creation, to Ezekiel. Uh, I actually uh, spoke this morning with uh, Tim Stedman from uh, Answer to Giant Questions. You can also find him on Raven Creek. And they are planning on doing a special on Ezekiel 28, mostly because we talked about it on this show. So, you know, that's the that's really great thing about what we get to do is we get to work with a lot of other podcasters who can pick up different pieces of the conversation. So if you haven't checked out the Raven Creek uh, podcast, the other Raven Creek podcast, be sure and do that and keep an eye out because we got more stuff, you know, brewing all the time. So, but, yeah. uh, well, yeah. And, and I remembered like the chapter and I've refreshed it, but I just couldn't remember exactly where we left off. I know we've yeah. been in it for a few weeks now. 
Yeah, we're, we're picking up with verse 15. And so we're still dealing with uh, Hushai and Ahithophel and all of the chaos that's gone on with that. So we'll, we'll start there and uh, we'll just kind of see where the story takes us because I have a feeling you're going to have a lot to interject in, in this episode. So verse 15 says, Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abathar the priest, Thus and so did Ahithophel cancel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus I have canceled. Now, this at this point, Hushai puts this network that David had assembled earlier in the chapter to work because um, he goes to the priest. And remember, the priest had brought the Ark of the Covenant to David, and they were going to go with him. They were going to leave Jerusalem with the Ark. And David had sent them back, and he'd also sent them back with their sons. This is where those little details become important. And again, remember, when you're reading the book of Samuel, the writer does not include details unless they're important, and he only includes them when they are important to the story. Mm. So verse 16 says, Now therefore, send quickly, and tell David, do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. So this is another piece of information. Hushai knew where David was camping. Hushai knew where to find him. And the only reason why he would know that is either because the priest and their sons had relayed the, the information directly to Hushai, or there's a possibility that everybody knew. I mean, he's got a large group of people he's traveling with. They, they make tracks down the road. They, they raise clouds of dust. Um, concealing their flight would not have been simple. So knowing exactly where they were and where to find them would have been very likely that everyone knew, that Absalom knew, that Ahithophel knew. And mm-hmm. so this, even though it seems kind of like an innocuous kind of a little conversation, we actually, we realize, wait a minute, David's not concealed. Yes, he's run, but he has not concealed where he is. So the other point that's important in here is Hushai specifically calls David the king. When he speaks of the king to Absalom, it's always a little fuzzy about who he's referring to, but he's talking this point to Absalom, calling David the king. Uh, there, there's no ambiguity. Um, well, he's not talking to Absalom, sorry. He's, he's talking to the priest. But there's no ambiguity about who Hushai thinks is the true king of Israel in this verse. So verse 17. Now, Jonathan and Ahimazah, uh, Maz, sorry, I, I can't read my own writing. Uh, we're waiting in, in Rolgale. Uh, a female servant was to go and tell them, and they were not to go, and they were to tell King David, for they were not to be seen in the city. So in chapter 15, we had been told that Jonathan and the, was the son of Abathar, and that Ahimaz was the son of Zadok. And like I said, the writer only gives you details when they're important. And now we're finding that they didn't go, these boys did not go back to Jerusalem. They actually remained outside the city so that they could jump and run when they were needed. Because these are the sons of the priest, priests who are known to be loyal to David. If they get up and leave Jerusalem, they're going to get all kinds of attention. So there's some really good planning that went into this because nobody's going to notice a servant woman leaving the city. Mm-hmm. I, she's got a certain level of anonymity that the young men just did not have. So Enrigel is mentioned in Joshua. This is um, a city that borders the, the territory of Judah and Benjamin, and it isn't very far away from Jerusalem. So they were still close enough to get a message to, but they weren't so far away that 
they, you know, that they were out of touch. But this is also sometimes known as a Job's well. And it, it's, it's a nice little kind of halfway point where it, it seems to be. On the surface, it really seems to be a strategic plot. However, when we move to verse 18, we find that it may not have been such a great pick after all. As verse 18 says, but a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Baharim, who had had a well in this courtyard, and they went down into it. So, you know, they're, they're spotted. They run to Baharim. Now, this is the same town where Shimei, when he came out to curse David and throw the rocks at him and, you know, says that David's a man of blood. This is where he's located at. And the fact that now Jonathan and uh, the other guy, whose name I keep butchering, run to the spot tells you that not everybody in Baharim actually hated David, that he had some support in the city. And this is, we're starting to kind of get a feel for how divided the nation is, that, you know, there's no clear cut um, ruler by dictate of the people or by decree of the people. There, there's this ambiguity about who people want, who's supporting who. The towns aren't even unified on who they want as a king. Not that it matters, but it kind of gives you a little, little sense of the, of the unrest that the whole country is experiencing at this point. And so they, they probably had some idea about this particular man's leanings. I mean, they go into his courtyard and into a well. Not a great place to hide if you don't want to get cornered. And right. so, you know, you, you kind of think that maybe they knew that there was a certain amount of uh, security at this guy's place that maybe they wouldn't have found at another house, like, you know, Shimmy's house. And so just these little details kind of flesh out the story if you pay attention and think about what they really mean and how they really reveal certain aspects of what's being said without saying it. So verse 19, And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz? I can't even talk today. Ahimaaz. And Jonathan and the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water, and then they sought they had sought and could not find them, and they returned to Jerusalem. Now, immediately, when we hear the story, we should be thinking of another story. And it's found in Joshua 2. So we have two spies. They go to mm -hmm. a border town. They're being pursued. They're helped by a woman. In this story, they're hidden in a well. In the other story, they're hidden in a rooftop. And in one story, they're covered with flax. In another story, they're covered with grain. And the woman tells the pursuers that, you know, the, the spies went, they went that away, basically. And she sends, uh, here in the story, the woman sends the men over a brook. And in uh, Joshua 2, the woman sends them over Jordan. So if you, do, you, know, if you haven't already guessed, this is the story of Rahab. This is right. a complete direct retelling of the story. And once again, we have David being saved by a woman. And we also have echoes of, uh, of uh, Michal or Michael, his wife, 
whenever she deceived Saul's men. Remember, she put the teraphim in the bed, and then she lowered David out the window, which was also reminiscent of Rahab. Mm-hmm. And so we've got you know these three uniting themes of women, deception, and the future of a nation in these women's hands, which could also tie us back to Exodus. And the idea that women use deception as a tool in order to save lives. And this is really a huge theme that we find throughout the Bible. And it's very interesting because when we think about, you know, morals and ethics in the Christian world, lying and deception don't always seem to be something that you would think of as the first choice. Right. But, you know, when you're thinking about women in this day and age and how much power they had and how much authority they had, there, there wasn't much. They didn't have a lot of tools at their disposal. I mean, a man could beat and kill his wife and, and nobody would do anything about it. Uh, you know, the, the idea of being ruled by men so completely that even a strange man, like, you know, we saw with Cicero and JL, men posed threats to women. So how did they mitigate the threat? Well, they did this through deception. They did this by telling lies. And it was, you know, basically they were forced into a corner that they couldn't really escape from. Now, we can, we can ask whether or not it was right. You know, should, should we trust God to, to save someone, even if we, you know, if we tell the truth? Where, where's the line? You know, do you, do you take life by telling the truth or do you preserve life by telling a lie? That's a really good question. Um, you know, a lot of people want to point back to, to the Ten Commandments and, you know, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. That literally means don't bear false witness. Don't, don't testify something that's untrue in a court. Don't, you know, don't say something that's going to condemn him according to the law. That's what that's referring to. It's not about lying. And so we can't really use that as some kind of litmus test about how to behave. We have to look beyond that. And, you know, I think that there is, I think it's admirable and honorable to tell the truth. I'm not saying that we should lie. I want to be very clear about that. But I think all of us who have ever been in a difficult situation, and I'm not even talking life and death. I mean, you, you, you knock somebody's precious, uh, figurine off of a shelf and you know you blame it on the cat and and why are you doing that well it's because you don't want to get in trouble you don't want to face the consequences and so you know should you tell the truth in that situation absolutely but what's the human reflex so how much more profound is that reflex going to be when it's a matter of life and death and not just life and death of these two guys that's just one level this is the whole fate and future of the nation And I don't think anybody would fault, say, like the Egyptian midwives for lying to Pharaoh because Pharaoh's not the true king of Israel. They have no allegiance to this guy. And so they're using these lies to save the lives of babies. And they save a nation because part of who they saved was Moses. They save a nation through their lies. And so I, I think one of the things that we're seeing here is a principle that at play where within the Torah, the, the primary, the foundational principle of the law was to preserve life. And particularly right. when that life was, you know, a life that's going to sh- shape the future of God's nation. And so this is the reason why, you know, people, we celebrate Rahab. 
Despite the fact she told a lie, we celebrate her. We celebrate the midwives. So, um, you know, the significance of what these women accomplish is very clear. And I think it's really interesting that we don't tell this particular story in church very often. And I don't think I'd really paid attention to it until we came um, through this book this way. And so um, the other interesting thing about this woman, and this may be why we don't tell her story, is she doesn't have a name. She's nameless. And we've talked previously how often in the Old Testament that nameless servant often represents the Holy Spirit. So it is kind of interesting that if that type holds true, is this a female personification or a female um, representative? I'm not saying definitely that this was God showing up or anything like that, but is it a representative of God's intent being worked out through through a woman? Uh, A lot of times we don't we don't talk about that, but. The other reason why I think we may not talk about the, her as much is Rahab, you know, she's a favorite trope. She, she's the, the prostitute with the heart of gold. You know, she's the soiled dove. She, she's, the, she's a character we see played out in so many movies and books today. So we, we do get to kind of identify with her. We, we, we kind of know where to place her. This woman has absolutely no background. and so. Um, we, we tend to overlook her, but at the same time, we need to realize that most of David's story at this point, now we're seeing this, this retelling of both the Exodus and the time in the wilderness that the children of Israel spent, you know, looking, gathering the manna and the quail and following God. And then there's also the, the Canaanite conquest itself. And this really becomes the point where we're going to see that shift where David goes from being on the run and fleeing from the enemies to actually reclaiming Jerusalem and Israel as his kingdom and creating that sacred space that we talked so much about last week. Right. So, well, and I'm going to bring in something you probably are not expecting. Um, I I think it's interesting uh, how many women are used in this story, uh, which you probably got that part. Um, that there's the, the women deceiving things and there's the servant woman sending the message and there's the one covering them with the grain. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, uh, we, th- I was thinking about this as, as we we're going through this, there is, um, there, I'm probably going to butcher this person's name. Uh, let me look it up <laughs> here. Um, I was listening to an episode of the Femsplainers podcast. They were like, they're more political and current events and things like that. And, um, uh, but they were, the, the, what was interesting about this is there was actually a uh, fighting force of women uh, who were fighting against ISIS. And the, the reason that they, they like left their traditional, uh, you know, roles in their own home countries. And because they were like, we can either do this or we can be ruled by a group of people who mistreat women on the regular. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, and after last week's episode and, and looking at that, but um, there's, there's, I listened to the interview uh, by uh, uh, the author. Uh, her name was Gail Zimak Lemon. I, I don't know the middle name, Zimak. Uh, I'm probably butchering that. And I am so <laughs> sorry. Um, 
but I really, um, I actually do want to get the book and read it because it seems very interesting, but the book is called The Daughters of, of Kobani, and it's the stories of these women who left their families to go fight ISIS because they knew that if their towns were overrun, mm-hmm. that they were just, you know, family members were going to be killed and women were going to be bought and sold like property. And um, so that's, you know, after talking about with Absalom and what he did uh, mm-hmm. with David's concubines, that definitely got around because they made a big public display of it. So right. you probably have a whole bunch of women going, yeah, we don't want that guy as king. It, it abs- and and so, that makes you know, sense. They're willing, to, they're willing to fight for it and they're willing to, uh, you know, to, to hide David and get the right person back on the throne. And so that's, I thought I would put that out there as it seems like a really interesting parallel uh, in the in the way things are going there. Yeah, and, and the the thing we need to remember too, they also would have known that David married Bathsheba. He he didn't just use her to make a political statement and cast her aside. We're never told what Absalom's interactions with these women after this point are, and so there's a good chance that they were just cast aside. They could have been kicked out of the palace. Uh, they could have been just left to fend for themselves. It would have been a miserable existence for them. I mean, remember when Tamar herself, you know, Absalom's sister, where we began all this, when she was raped, Absalom brings her into the home and takes care of her. And we don't have any account that these women are being taken care of. So if you've got a guy who, yes, he did a horrible thing. Uh, he, he did rape Bathsheba. He did bring, you know, kill Uriah, but he still cared for her. And then you've got Absalom where you have no mention of what happens. And if there's no mention of what happens, then you could kind of let your imagination run wild a little bit. They, the women definitely would have been saying, hey, you know, in this, David is more trustworthy than him. And plus, David's repentance was public. That's mm-hmm. the other thing. So the women knew that he, he repented. Absalom, he's not, there's no repentance. And I keep going back to that point. Because that is the defining significant factor of difference between the two of them, is that David repented, he repented publicly. And so, you know, who are you going to trust? The guy who, who is still arrogantly pursuing this course that he's on, or the guy who, who repents and, and does the right thing by this woman? So it does make sense that from that perspective, that the women of the, of the country would be more uh, pro-David than Absalom. because I mean. There's a significant difference in the story there. But the other thing I thought was interesting is this really opens up a whole new dimension to how we read the New Testament women. Because when we talk about um, Mary having to, to flee corrupt leadership, she had to flee Herod, and she had to literally conceal Jesus within her body. And so, you know, we kind of have this retelling in that moment. You know, there was this necessary deception. Even in marrying Joseph, there's a necessary deception to protect herself and to protect her child, even in that act. And so she, she becomes someone who, who uses deceit and deception to create, to, you know, give birth to the one who's going to make sacred space of us all. And so I, I think there's some, some really interesting parallels in that because these women show up over and over again when there's a pivotal shift in, in expanding and building that sacred space, whether we're talking about the nation of Israel itself or we're talking about building the temple or we're talking about 
building God's kingdom through the arrival of the king, you know, Lord Jesus Christ at, at, at his birth. And so we could look at, you know, the woman at the well, um, where the theme is revelation and not concealment, where Jesus gives women the power to tell the truth, to tell the truth about themselves and their own situation. And so we have a wonderful reversal there because, you know, Jesus tells her sacred space is no longer, you know, limited to a mountain because that was, you know, you go back to the story, that was the, 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 uh, conflict between her and, and uh, the Jews, her people and the Jews, was where, you know, where do you worship? And Jesus says, you know, anyone who worships me in spirit and truth, that, that's sacred space. This is where you're going to worship now. It doesn't have to be confined to Zion or Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and she becomes the first person who, once she confronts the truth about her own situation, which by the way, let's just go here for a second. There is no evidence that she was divorced. What was it? Seven times? Five times? Right. What, yeah, there, yeah, there's no evidence. The, the scripture never says that. Is there a possibility she was? Absolutely. Because guess what? Divorce is not a sin under the Torah. There are guidelines for how it is done. And so according, and we're not even talking about New Testament law here. I'm talking about the laws that she operated under the laws that were revealed to the people at that time before Jesus came to say, hey, here's how we're going to do things from now on. Under the Torah, she was not in sin even if she had been divorced. The other thing we need to remember, in that day and age— Five husbands. Five husbands. Okay. Yeah. In that day and age, causes for death were a whole lot more prevalent than they are today. A cold could take someone out. A scratch from a rusty piece of metal could take someone out. The, the, just the lack of Neosporin alone. I mean, that is something that could cause someone to die. Infected, infected hangnails could kill someone. So, right. you know, so when we say, you know, forget about battles, forget about the fact that they're under Roman occupation and you say the wrong thing and a Roman soldier could take you out with no repercussions. There are so many reasons she could have had other husbands. So when people say, oh, she was divorced, no, they're reading their presupposition into the text because the text never says that. So um, anyone who talks badly of her needs to get a grip because here's the thing, that woman, that horrible, sinful woman that so many people like to look down on is the first person that Jesus ever tells that he's the Messiah. He had never spoken those words to another person before he revealed it to her. So, you know, anyone who's using her as some kind of object lesson needs to do it the right way. And so, um, but, you know, we could talk about her. We could talk about the women at the tomb who took coverings for a dead body. They're going to anoint the body with herbs and spices and oils and, and to anoint it. And then to only to find out, to have that ultimate revelation that Jesus isn't dead. And you know, and when they speak the truth, what's so interesting is when the women speak the truth, what happens? The men doubt it here. Whenever women lie, the men believe it. So again, we've got that reversal going on. And so, you know, women throughout the Bible have been very pivotal in the creation and the protection of sacred space. 
we were not left out of this process. We've always been included. We've been included since the beginning, and and we are still included in that process. And so, you know, the the difference that I'm seeing is that we have this these Old Testament stories of women who were forced to resort to deception and subterfuge. But the women in Jesus' ministry were empowered to speak the truth, and they were allowed to reveal rather than to conceal because Christ was revealed to them. And so um, I, I just I think that's wonderful that we see, see this shift, and we see Jesus himself engaging women and, and empowering them to speak truth and not be forced to, to resort to deception. And I think that's the example we follow today as Christian women, to speak the truth. So anyway, not to make this too much about women, but I mean, I have been shocked. I have been in church my whole life. And how many stories of women have been neglected? And so every time I come across these stories, I mean, I just get excited because I'm like, why aren't we teaching this? this? Why, why aren't there sermons about this? And so to be able to actually share this stuff, I mean, it's really cool, but anyhow. Um, well, and, I, I, and I, you know, I want to say this too, because one of the biggest complaints about Christianity today is that it is sexist and it doesn't mm-hmm. value women. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is because these stories have been neglected and nobody knows them. Mm-hmm. And I went through are... seminary. <laughs> right, right. And so... Yeah, there there are certain things of the treatment of women that you, that is not great in this book. The Bible is honest about it. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, some of that is a product of the time, and that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, we have so many people who are neglecting the the pivotal role that a lot of these women play. Yes. and then they're also, and then going even farther to to say that the way that the women were treated were sometimes to say that this is how women should be treated. Right. And that's one of the things we've been harping on since the beginning is the Bible is not necessarily a record of <laughs> how it should have happened. The Bible is a record of how things did happen. And that's what we've got to, to, to separate is that, you know, when we start getting so much into that this was all, everything perfectly designed mm-hmm. and and everything played out to, to a perfect plan, well, I mean, if it all plays out to a perfect plan, why, are, why don't we have a perfect world? Um, so, you know, <laughs> we can, <laughs> and I don't want to go too far down that, right. that trail, but I just want to say, but one of the reasons people are leaving the church is because, not, you know, and everyone wants to blame, oh, well, it's, it's society, oh, it's those quote, evil, unquote, feminist, you know, <laughs> evil, liberal, quote, unquote, yeah, aggressive the, 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 Christians. Per, yeah. But it's like, well, if you would actually teach the Bible, you would be disarming people. And as yeah. it is, the way the Bible's being taught, it's basically just handing someone a gun and getting mad when they fire it. <laughs> right. I mean, no, I mean, it's true. Uh, and, you know, I, I've posted a couple of things um, the past few weeks because I've been kind of thinking about some of this stuff. And uh, I posted some things on my timeline on Facebook and, you know, it's there. My page is public for anyone who wants to see it. And some of the stuff's on Raven Creek page. Um, but I, I actually started getting messages. It's like, who do you know treats women like this? Where do you get this information that people act like this? There is a huge, and well, I say huge, there is a 
large enough population of Christians who think so poorly of women out there that they're, it, it's concerning. It, it, it's actually, it's beyond concerning. It's really terrifying. And, right. you know, when they are willing in their own writing to put things like they're willing to control a woman, that they command women, that... Um, that they have to punish their wives when they, they disagree. Yes, punish. I mean, there are people writing punish. stuff like this online. And I, yeah. Absolutely. And so, and so, yeah, it's out there. And what's really sad is there are women who are buying into it. And they're buying into it because they were told that as women, they are worth less. Not yep. worthless, but worth less. Yep. And so, you know, that's not true. And that's one of the reasons why I harp on this so much is because we aren't exempt from God's love, grace, and mercy just because we're women. And if you, you know, see somebody teaching about, oh, well, you know, women have to obey men and they don't, they can't speak. They need to be quiet. They, okay, well, let's read the whole of the Bible. And I'm not going to get into to all of the arguments about why that's wrong. We, we can talk about that later on my page if somebody wants to, to send me a message or whatever. But the point is, when you read these stories, you see how instrumental they are. And, you know, you talked about it not being, you know, a prescription of how things are. Um, you know, one of the really great things is, now bear with me because it's going to take a second for it to get great. In David's story, when a woman saves him, he leaves her behind. You know, that's what happened to Mikal. That's the reason why she was married off to someone else. That's why Saul could do that. He left her behind. When Abigail saved David, you know, he leaves her at Ziklag and she's kidnapped because he left her behind. And so there's like three different women in David's story that he leaves behind. And the, the concubines there with that. The only reason why Absalom could do that. Why? Because he left them behind. What does Jesus do? No, he includes us. He keeps us with him. He doesn't send us away. He doesn't say, okay, well, you've, you've fulfilled your purpose. Now, now go make some bread or cook some cookies for me or a sandwich, whatever. He does not abandon the women in his life. Matter of fact, when he was on the cross, one of the final things he did was to make sure that John was going to take care of his mother. So you know, we see these reversals, and this is why Jesus is the true Messiah. Yes, David was the, the type, he's the, the, the foreshadowing of what is to come, but Jesus is still greater. So have we beat this horse enough? Uh. Well, I, I, I did want to mention um, that, you know, the, the submission thing, mm-hmm. what it says to women about submission, it's in that whole verse where, and we've touched on this before, you know, submit yourselves to one another, and then, you know, I don't know the exact wording, but it's mm-hmm. like, then wives to your own husbands. Uh, the way I think we should be reading that is to say, hey, men, not all women have to submit to all men. Exactly. It's wives to their husband. I think that's in there to protect women from exactly. being told they have to submit to all men and putting them in needlessly dangerous situations. Absolutely. And so, you know, it's, it's like the eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. It's not permission, it's limit. Well, and that's because... And, it, and, and it's, 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 well, it's, it's, it's how to love your neighbor better than... Uh, than the world does. You know, well, don't kill a slave because he knocked out your servant's tooth. Don't you, kill his whole family. You take that out. Yeah, you don't kill his whole family. Um, but it is, you know, find a way to make it right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so anyway, go ahead with what well, you're Well, what I was going to say with Ephesians 5, now that you brought it up, you submit yourself one to another. Then there's always 
a, a section break, which I find this to be really interesting. Most Bible translations, not always, but almost all of them have a section break. So let's say submit yourselves one to another section break, and then it'll say something about husbands and wives or marriage. And then he'll pick up with verse 22. And then that's where it says wives submit them, should submit to their husbands. The problem is Ephesians 21 and Ephesians 22, they're one sentence. It's a sentence that's been divided in half. If you go back to the oldest Greek manuscripts, there's no verbs in 22. It's a dependent clause. If you don't read it like that, then you actually have wives, your own husbands. What does well, that yeah. mean? Well, and the, the thing is, it to me, when you when you break it down like that, it almost reads like a parenthetical. Right. Right. And, and you know, so it's like submit yourselves one to another, wives to your own husbands, and then goes on because mm-hmm. and I do think it is kind of tacked on there as a as a protective piece. Yeah. But but the the way that a lot of people have been taught is that it is a complete sentence, it's a standalone command, and it's not, and that's deceptive. And whenever publishers put in that, that section break, and this does make me mad, so I'm just saying what I think. When publishers put in that section break, which is not part of the original manuscript, they're misleading the readers. Well, they're misleading and, the reader, and they are, they are improperly dividing the word of truth. Literally. 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 Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Verse 21, so I can bring my blood pressure down. Because <laughs> I've got to record Do we have any good news? Do we have any of that? <laughs> yeah. Jesus didn't abandon the women who saved him, who, who, and when I say saved him, of course, I'm not talking like, you know, spiritual salvation. I'm talking about women who served him and, and helped him live a life and, and preserve his life through gifts of food and ministry and whatever. So, um, cause he, he kept these women with him and he engaged them. They traveled with him. They ministered with him. So um, we need to remember that and, and stop acting like uh, Jesus forgot about women. So that's the good news. Jesus' example is so much better than David. Verse 21. After they had gone, the, man came out of the, well, the men came out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise, go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. So unlike the spies in Jericho who said, Come and attack. This is another part of this reversal. These spies tell David, you need to run. You, you need to make a strategic retreat right now. This is what's going to save your life. So in verse 22, uh, we're, we find out that every, David and everyone with him, they cross over the Jordan. No one's left behind. David's starting to get it right. They all arrive safely. And this is the first time that David takes everyone with him. He doesn't leave someone behind. And so we're seeing some progress. And that's the thing about David. We see progress. And that, that's what we want to see. This is what gives us hope. Now, I think verse 23 is really interesting. And it says, When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, went off home to his own city, set his house in order, and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, my, my first thought is this is someone who has never told no before. Um, right. But on a more serious note, I, I'm, I'm definitely seeing a parallel between this and Judas. Absolutely. I mean, Ab- that, that, that just kind of jumps right off the page. You have someone who betrays the leader and then goes mm-hmm. and hangs himself. Right. And, and I, don't, I, I so, couldn't find much so I, more <laughs> to... 
No, I mean, but you're right. Because I couldn't find like much more like, you know, oh, this is what it illustrates other than it's just one more tie that connects the type of David with Jesus. And so uh, now my first thought was talk about the overreaction of the year. Um, but that just shows my modern mindset because we, we have to think about all the repercussions and the fact, okay, number one, Ahithophel's smart. He's a wise man. This is never negated. God himself never negates it. God affirms that Ahithophel's plan was actually a good one if we're just talking about military strategy. Um, he knows Absalom's been played. He gets it. And he knows that because Absalom had listened to Hushai, that there's no hope for victory now. So what does this mean? This means David's going to come back. David's going to claim his throne. David is going to punish those people who were helping Absalom try to take the throne. Sure. And so he, he knows he's going to die. This is, this is what you do for treason. You kill someone. You don't let them stay in your kingdom, particularly not in this day and age. Forget it. There, there's no mercy. You take out the rebellion, and you take out the rebellious ones. So he knows he's going to die. The only control he has is when and how. And so he decides to exercise that control. So he goes back to his house. He sets it in order. What this probably means is that he gave away his possessions is what they're probably talking about. He gave his sons their inheritance. He, he made sure the land that he owned was distributed to the proper family members. And because the, the thing is, if he had held on to these, if David had come back and killed him, now they're David's. It, right. As long as they belonged to Ahithophel himself, David had the full right to claim that property as his own. So by distributing it before he dies, by signing these things over, basically, now David can't take the livelihood from his sons and his grandkids and maybe their kids. He, he makes sure that they have a way to continue living within the kingdom. Why? Because, like you mentioned a while ago, that eye for an eye thing. If David's going to follow the, the Torah, then he's not going to take out all of Ahithophel's family, although that's what the Canaanite kings would have done. That's what the Romans would have done. That's what every other nation from that point in time up till, you know, very recently, uh, when we're speaking of world history, that's what they would have done. And matter of fact, I mean, we could talk about stories from Russia and Germany and, uh, you know, during different wars and things where if they believe someone was guilty of treason, take out the whole family. Don't, don't let yeah. anyone stay alive. Yeah. Well, and I was actually like, as you were going through that, I was like, you can almost, you could almost see this as, uh, Ahithophel, uh, almost, uh, in a way, uh, enacting his own justice, mm -hmm. um, and, and in a way preemptively, uh, enacting what the Torah would, 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 yeah. you know, recommend. I mean, I, I don't know exactly if I could can go that far you know considering it's a suicide um so it's like what's the you know it, i i can see the wisdom in taking care of the family i can see uh you know him uh putting forth his own recompense because basically he was saying he was going to take david's you know he was willing to go with the side who was going to take david's life mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then takes his own life he wanted um, to take David's life. He had plans so, to take David's life. Oh, yeah. No, uh, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Yeah, he yeah. was on the side of the people who wanted to take mm -hmm. David's life. And uh, yeah, so it's, 
uh, yeah, I'm. He I don't was know. telling Absalom how to get it done. <laughs> and yeah, well, and I, you know, I, I've been pondering this uh, quite a bit since I read it a few weeks ago, and I still don't know what to make on the end of it. Well, and you know, and here's the thing: there's like the the writer Samuel makes no moral judgment about this. There, there's no moral um, commentary on the suicide. It, it's just presented as a matter of fact. Uh, obviously, in Christianity, uh, suicide is not something that is um, that w- that we endorse. Uh, we we believe that you know there should be hope, and that we as a community should be drawing around people who who might be tempted, who might feel that that's their only option. I would hope and pray that anyone who ever um, who ever entertained thoughts of suicide would would have some kind of community to plug in to help them through those times. That's how we should be functioning. Uh, I don't believe, and I'm just going to put this out there, and I haven't done a lot of study on it, I don't believe suicide condemns you to hell. Um, I, I don't think it's God's perfect plan for anyone. I almost hate to use that phrase. I don't think that's his plan. I don't think that's his desire. But I think there's grace because people don't kill themselves because everything's wonderful. There is some kind of underlying pain. There's some unmet need that they haven't figured out how to, how to address and how to find any healing for. And there's, you know, um, a counselor friend of mine put it very well. It's not so often that so much that people want to die themselves. They, they want the situation they're in to die. And so, you know, I can understand that. I can wrap my head around that, that way of thinking about it. And so if you, you know, if you're dealing with suicidal thoughts, then, you know, let's try to find some way to get some help. But I don't think that we need to immediately jump to the conclusion that someone's done something unforgivable because they've done this. And so, uh, and not that, you know, like I said, within the story, there's no comment on, on the morality of it. And even within Judaism, it's not something that's condoned because why you're destroying the image of God and you don't do that. You, you take care of the image of God and um, that's us. That's our bodies. That's why we need to take care of, of our physical beings and not just go, Oh, well, you know, I'm too holy for that. And cause I've known some people, I'm too holy to work out. You know, that's just vanity. Well, no, that's not vanity. That that's taking care of this gift God gave you. So um, that's kind of just an aside, but uh, you know, and just, I've been there. I, I, I've had those thoughts. And, you know, I know I talked about it. I was, um, got to be on the show with Alicia Breeze and, you know, find that interview on her station. It was so cool to be able to talk to her. And, you know, I don't care how bad things get. If you can just get through today and not worry about tomorrow, then you never know what God's going to bring about. Because there was a point in my life where absolutely I would have said, nothing that's happening right now could be happening. I would have thought there was absolutely no way God could have brought in, brought something out of that season. But, you know, thank God I had kids. They kept me going. <laughs> I knew I had to be there for them. And, and God's been faithful. And so sometimes that takes a while to get there. So, you know, I spent seven years in a camper. I'm in a new house. How crazy is that? So um, not saying that's a reason. <laughs> that sounds kind of shallow. But that was a big deal for us. So anyhow, I feel like I'm rambling now. But verse 24, then David came to Manhanim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel 
And so what follows is this interesting juxtaposition of family members that's clarifying and confusing all at the same time. And so I'm going to try to make sense of this. And honestly, this would be where I wish everybody was watching YouTube so I could just draw a friggin' chart because lines are going to get crossed and recrossed and twisted. So just kind of try to follow um, along. So uh, verse 25. Now Absalom said to, had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who married Abigail, the daughter of Lachash, the sister of Zuria, Joab's mother. Okay, so let's take this apart. Joab is David's general. So we know from previous um, texts that he is the son of Zuria. Zuria is David's sister. We also know that from previous, previous texts. Therefore, Joab is David's nephew. Okay. Got with me so far? Amasa. Sure. <laughs> okay. So Amasa is Absalom's general. He's the son of Ithra, the Ishmaelite, and Abigail. So in this verse, we find out that Abigail is the sister of Zuria. Therefore, Abigail is David's aunt, and Ithra is David's nephew, just like Joab is David's nephew. And he's the cousin to Joab and Absalom. Okay, not too hard. Now, Abigail's father is Nachash. Nachash is the king of the Ammonites. Hunan, if you remember Hunan, oh, oh my gosh, I told myself not to say that. Hanun was Nachash's son who ruled Rabbah. Rabbah was the guy back in some previous chapters where Joab fought the war and won the city while David was on the rooftop looking down at Bathsheba. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was where that came in. So Abigail is Hanun's sister. And so now the Nakash has been an ambiguous figure in the story all the way along. And in 2 Samuel 10-2, if you can remember back that far, we learn that Nakash dealt loyally with David. That's the reason why he sent the guys to Rabbah to comfort Hanun when his father died. And that's whenever Hanun cut off half their beard and cut off half their clothes. And so in our episode, on Psalms 51, we talked about this some, and about how David's mother, Netzavet, might have had some connection to Nakash. And it's based on the, uh, the verse in Psalms 51, where David says, in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, there are various stories and various theories about how these connections work, and one of which was that David's mother may have been one of Nakash's wife and later married Jesse. And this, is, this verse right here is where that story is born. So, Let's kind of walk through this a little bit more. Abigail is both the daughter of Nakash and the sister of Zuria. Like I said, Zuria is the sister of David. And we know that Jesse is David's father. That's plainly stated in several places. First Chronicles 2 is one of those places. But also in First, in First Chronicles 2, there's the statement made that Abigail and Zuria were the sisters of the son of Jesse. So not that they're daughters of Jesse, but that they're sisters. 
of Jesse's uh, sons. So the daughters, the implication being that the daughters are not Jesse's. And here we find out that the daughters, not only Jesse's, that they are the daughters of Nakash, the Ammonite king. So the idea, and just a real quick recap on what we covered in Psalms 51, is that Nitzavet, which is the traditional name of David's mother, she's never named in scripture, would have been married to Nakash, and then later on would have married Dave, uh, David's father, Jesse. So she was either a wife or a concubine of the Ammonite king, according to this theory. That's the most favorable, generous reading of the scripture. But the really odd thing is, is why would any king give his wife or concubine to a commoner like Jesse to marry? Because we already know, and that's been very, we've gone over it lots of times, that kings, wives, and concubines are not supposed to sleep with other men. That's the equivalent of saying that um, this man can take the king's place in every other way. So that's kind of weird. And there's a whole lot more to the story that we aren't getting. And we also know that Nakash dealt loyally with David. So there doesn't seem to be any animosity between, for, from Nakash towards Jesse's son, and presumably not Jesse himself. The, the cool thing about the story is that there is no way to read this as David coming from a quote-unquote proper family. Uh, you know, so much of how this works out is not told about in the Bible. We don't have any indication of how this really played out, what was going on. Uh, obviously, uh, Nakash was still alive when David's mother was with, with, was with Jesse because David's king by the time Nakash dies. So there's something going on there. This, this is messed up, and, and the Bible never really explains it. And the cool thing is that in not explaining it, it actually reveals a whole lot, okay? Because we've got two possibilities. Uh, one is that, well, indisputable facts, let's put it this way. She had clearly been, David's mother had clearly been with Nakash or Jesse. So she was either a divorcee, oh my goodness, or an adulteress. She's not a stand-up person. So David may have been very, oh, I say stand-up, She's not a proper person, not what we would consider proper. But again, divorce back in the Old Testament, not a thing. No worries about it. Don't have to get upset or all up in arms about it. It's only scandalous to us. It wasn't scandalous to them. And so the fact that she is not what we would consider a, a good Christian woman is very interesting because she was either an Israelite woman who married a foreign king, an Ammonite king named Nakash of all things, which is the same word that's used of the serpent in the garden, which is really weird. And then if she wasn't an Israelite woman, then Jesse married a Gentile woman. And so the implications of all this are huge because God didn't choose the perfect son from the perfect family to elevate to the place of being a king. He, he, he chose someone with kind of this sordid background, this questionable background, that we, we would think in our little, you know, 1950s kind of ideas of what family should look like would have disqualified him. Mm -hmm. and, and God cares so little 
about what Jesse and Nitzavet and Nakash and what their little love triangle may have looked like, that he doesn't even bother to explain it. He doesn't care because the only thing he cares about is David's heart. The, this, whatever, you know, if it was sin, not sin that happened in that family, God says, who cares? I'm interested in David, this guy. And so, you know, I think that's hopeful. I, I think that that's really an amazing message for people who sometimes think, well, you know, my family's not a great family, or I came from a broken family, my parents were divorced, or what have you. God doesn't care. I mean, he cares about the fact that it may have hurt you, but that doesn't disqualify you. That doesn't make you less worthy to participate in the kingdom and the things that God's doing in this world. He still wants you. And if he could take David from this situation where David even writes about his birth, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. When David says that about himself, and he recognizes it as the truth of his background, but he's still the king of Israel, oh my goodness, how, how freeing is that for people? Right. Uh, so it's really amazing to me that God could take something he doesn't even really talk about in his book and use it to, to open doors. And, you know, maybe the reason why uh, we don't talk about it is because there, there's this idea that it would somehow diminish David, that it would somehow um, make him less than. And, mm. you know, and the, the rabbis actually came up with these stories that, that affirmed how sinless Jesse was. Matter of fact, they, they say he's one of the three men who walked the earth who never committed a sin, that he was able to enter into Eden uh, without dying because he didn't sin. Well, we know that's not true. I mean, we, we obviously know that that can't possibly be the case, but they were so worried about making sure that David's you know, parentage was pure enough for him to be the king that they actually created these stories to reaffirm how great his parents were when the Bible never presents that. And, you know, I think we, we still do that today. We still have this tendency within the Christian community of downplaying and, and actually playing up other, you know, the, the great aspects of someone as a way to keep them from being disqualified. Well, how about we just all own our story? Right. How about, you know, if we've never done something to be redeemed from, what did Jesus die for? Um, you know, celebrate the fact that there is redemption. Celebrate the fact that, that God can look at somebody who the world might not think is qualified and say, I can make you a king. That, that's, that's huge. And so I, I was really excited whenever I began putting kind of pieces together. And at first, you know, I started out down this journey going, I'm really frustrated. I want to know the story now. How did Jesse wind up with the wife of a king or a concubine of a king? What, what's going on there? And, and the Bible has nothing to say. All you can find is speculation. And, you know, as I said, about, even in this episode about the writer of Samuel, he only gives you the, the information you need as you need it. And he didn't even care about who David's parents were, other than whenever they had to, you know, Jesse had to directly interact with the storyline. And so for me, it was like, this actually tells a lot more about God's character, surprise, than it does about David. Right. And so I, I 
I actually, I went from being very frustrated to very excited about what it revealed because man, as and I'm not, I almost hate, I feel like I've turned this into the episode about women. Um, but you know, I had people who said, oh, you've been divorced. You, you've remarried. You can't possibly be teaching the Bible. You're a woman. You can't teach a Bible, uh, teach the Bible. And you know, God didn't care. And I, I believe I'm doing exactly what he's called me to do. Some days better than others. But the, the point is, when God does redeem someone from their past, he does it completely. It, it's right. not, yeah. And your parents' mistakes, that's your parents' mistakes. That's between them and God. And it doesn't define you and it doesn't disqualify you. You get to choose at any moment of time whether or not you want to, to step into the destiny that God's calling you to. So um, I got ahead of my notes here. So anyway, what we're doing here with this verse, and that, that's not just what the, the writer's trying to tell us. The writer's really setting us up this parallel because we have David with Joab leading his army, and we have Absalom with uh, Amasa in charge of his army. So we got the son of Zuria and the son of Abigail. We got, got these family members who are, who are pitted against each other somewhat evenly at this point. And once again, that chaos and that conflict of who's supposed to be king, who's supposed to be ruling this country, is being highlighted by the very fact that, that we do have these very similar setups within the courts of both you know, kings, Absalom, of course, the false king, and David, the true king. And that's what the writer is setting you up for. Because in verse 26, we find that Absalom and Israel, the nation of Israel, is camped with um, camped in Gilead together. So we're going to hold off on verse 27, because verse 27, we get into some more of those um, family parallels and uh, family tree stuff that would be a lot easier with a with a chart. So, okay, yeah, I think we're gonna call well, it good there. I hope I was coherent this episode. <laughs> yeah, I think I think for the most part. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll pick up next week and hopefully you know we can all get some sleep before then. And uh, <laughs> no, it, overall, I, I you seem to get your point across. Uh, um, and I followed anyway. So if 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 you didn't out there, uh, you know, let us know and we'll try to clarify or, you know, anything like that. Uh, hit us up at RavenCreekSC.com for the website, Raven Creek SC on all the social media. And uh, you can find us there. Um, you can find some other shows and uh, good fun times to be had by all. And we will see you next time. So thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.